As of this episode's release, on January 13th, 2023, there are 103 days until Ivan's scheduled execution. When this thing goes to court and trial, I have one shot and one opportunity to be not guilty or I go to prison in death row. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the reality of it. We have busted alibis. We have caught people in lies. This is just insane because everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else. You just don't hear every day walking in somebody's house, they're going to take the plastic out and pop somebody. So he could get the execution date pretty much any day? Yeah. There's no impediment. This is Cousins by Blood. Episode 38, The 20-Year Timeline, Part 2. After Ivan's conviction in 2001, he was appointed a direct appeal attorney named David Haynes. Letter to David Haynes, December 10th, 2002. Dear Mr. Haynes, please understand that Mr. Matt Geller stated to me on many occasions that I would be receiving copies of everything I signed, and to this day, I have still not seen them. I know that you cannot be held responsible for their actions. But what in the world must I do to receive a copy of everything they have on me in their office? As you heard last episode, Ivan's trial attorneys would not respond to his requests for his files. But Ivan's direct appeal attorney was more communicative and would respond to Ivan's letters. By 2003, during the direct appeal process, Ivan started getting copies of the court transcripts. There were 53 volumes in total. May 7th, 2003. Dear Mr. Haynes, Slowly but surely, I'm receiving the record, and you're right, it's massive. David, based off the record, I've got to know what types of things I need to gather for you that can be of assistance. For example, where prosecutors might have lied, where the courts might have failed in allowing certain evidence, or where my trial attorney should have objected and didn't. With your expertise in filing direct appeals, what is it that you look for in a court transcript that holds strong appeal weight with the Court of Criminal Appeals? Your March letter states you have until July 31st, 2003 to file my direct appeal with the court. Now, with that being the case, how much time will Jane Hemphill have to file my habeas corpus after your filing has been made? In addition to his direct appeal attorney, Ivan was also appointed an attorney to file his writ of habeas corpus. Her name was Jan Hemphill. Where the direct appeal is limited to errors that may have occurred that are already on the record from trial, the writ of habeas corpus is different. In that process, you're able to bring up issues that are not necessarily found in the record and essentially creating a new record of issues. In the writ of habeas corpus, that's where issues are brought up like ineffective assistance of trial counsel. Ivan elaborates. Just so you know, my direct appeal, it's what they do is they go, literally he gets the transcripts and he goes off of the court records and he reads through it. And he, he searches for constitutional errors, just things that are in black and white that shows that there was a constitutional error or a, re, or a structural error or a reason to um, grant relief and issue a new trial. He doesn't do any investigation, anything that has to do with you know preparing affidavits, um, sitting down with witnesses, hiring a private investigator. That's for my state habeas. While David Haynes was communicative with Ivan during the process, Jan Hemphill was not. 
My concern is that she and I have spent no time working on this case, and I'll be damned if she thinks she's going to file shortly after you do without properly investigating my case and without a private investigator being involved. With my state habeas corpus being the most important, she needs to get in front of me to discuss many issues that pertain to this case. I know you don't have anything to do with my habeas corpus, but please call Jane Hemphill and have her have the professionalism in returning my letters. You're a good attorney. I'm thankful for having you. Please share with me how I can be of help to you since we're up against such time constraints. The following month, June of 2003. Dear Mr. David Haynes, Since the court transcripts have arrived, I've been reading it religiously. I've put a lot of things together for you that can help in framing my appeal. Don't worry, I'm not going to bombard you with issues that would require investigation because that would pertain to my habeas corpus. I realize that's not what my direct appeal deals with. I do need your help with something, and that's having more time to prepare such issues for you. Can you file for an extension? I'm making pretty good time reading the record, and at my pace, I should be completed within the next 45 days since my direct appeal is due first. I beg of you to buy us the extra time. The detailed report that I'll have ready for you within the next 45 days will include all volume and page numbers. And just to bring you up to speed, Jane Hemphill is still not communicating with me. My habeas corpus is too important for her not to pay attention to me as a client and not investigate my case properly. My case is so complex. How is she going to know how to help me unless she at least communicates with me? The sad thing is that I see her here at this facility while I'm visiting family members, but she doesn't even make it a point to discuss anything with me or acknowledge to me that she's here. For God's sake, I'm fighting for my life, and I've already been railroaded once during trial, and now it's happening again. Please do everything in your power to buy us a little extra time. The following month, July of 2003. Dear David Haynes, Today I received notification that your second motion for extension of time to file my brief was denied. Thank you for your attempt, but it's a shame we were denied. Seeing that I won't have the opportunity to provide you with notes for volume 33 and 46, please at least make sure my brief contains the information I'm about to share with you. In volume 33 of 53, between pages 180 and 200, I noticed that Matt Geller waived my rights from being present during partial testimony of Detective Wynn. This was the Sub Rosa hearing that we've spoken of, where it was discovered that Detective Wynn's binders of evidence were never turned over to the defense. I was present during the previous testimony, so why did Matt Geller feel the need to exclude me from this portion of testimony without my knowledge? During this section of transcript, the prosecution clearly didn't turn over all exculpatory evidence during discovery. Gail Falco clearly states there are documents that indeed needed to be turned over to the defense based on the case law of Brady versus Maryland. These violations clearly call for reversible error, and I want to make sure those issues are raised in my appeal. During trial, my defense was finally made aware of these documents that mentioned someone else being the killer in these murders, and this was not researched. This again proves that my case includes many facets of prosecutorial misconduct. Without Detective Wynn accidentally mentioning this during his testimony, how else would my defense have known about these reports? With Detective Wynn's imperative police reports being illegally withheld from my defense by the prosecution, it leaves one to wonder what else was withheld by the prosecution in their efforts to do whatever deemed possible for a conviction. Please do everything in your power to get me a new trial. I look forward to receiving my copy of the brief, 
upon your completion. The issues Ivan just asked his attorney to raise were not. But let's get into this direct appeal briefly. What does it look like? Is the 37-page document that lists the argued 13 points of error initially and then spends a few pages arguing each point. The summary of the argument read like this. Summary of the argument. Appellant attacks his capital murder conviction in 13 points of error. The first four points go to the issues of illegal search and seizure. There's an issue regarding an accomplice witness instruction, legal and factual sufficiency of the evidence, points for both the guilt-innocence phase and the punishment phase of the trial, and three constitutional points of error. Regarding these illegal search and seizure claims, Ivan's direct appeal attorney brought up the fact that the apartment had been searched three times, once without a warrant, twice with warrants, the argument being that the wellness check in Ivan and Amy's apartment, conducted by Officer Younger and Officer Eisenberg, on November 4th, which lasted 10 to 15 minutes, exceeded the plain view scope of the search. It also seems to infer that during the warrantless wellness check on November 4th, Younger and Eisenberg must have seen the items there that were later seized because- The items described in Wynn's affidavit almost matched the items found in the apartment after the search warrant. The argument continues that when Detective Wynn sought a search warrant on November 7th, the affidavit submitted did not show sufficient probable cause because there was no connection between the items he was looking for and the apartment, and that the, quote, facts in Wynn's affidavit were based on suspicion and conjecture. The direct appeal states that the case law is well settled, that the inarticulate hunch of an arresting officer is insufficient to constitute probable cause, and that the evidence found, the bloody clothes, the bullets, and James and Amy's keys should have been inadmissible. Interestingly, the opinion of the court sounded willing to accept this argument. The opinion wasn't delivered until 2004, so we're jumping ahead a bit here. The court decided, assuming without deciding that the searches were illegal, we find the admission of the evidence to be harmless, and that given the testimony of Jeff and Amy Betcher, the court finds beyond a reasonable doubt that the evidence did not contribute to Ivan's conviction. It's hard to imagine that the jeans and socks with blood matching James and Amy and a box of bullets matching the murder weapon did not contribute at all to Ivan's conviction. And actually, there was a dissenting opinion from Justice Womack, which stated, I do not agree with the court's decision that the error of admitting evidence that was illegally seized was harmless. And I believe the law requires us to reverse the judgment. I respectfully dissent. And in fact, three other judges joined Womack's dissenting opinion. Four out of the nine judges believed Ivan's conviction should have been reversed because of the illegal search and seizure. That's how close Ivan was to getting a retrial with this decision. But jumping back to 2003 and the direct appeal filing, the most eye-raising point of error was number five because in the filed appeal as a point of error, it states that you contend that if the crime had taken place as Amy Betcher alleges, that uh, she then was an accomplice in the murders. Uh, 
Did you tell your appeal attorney that Amy was your accomplice in the murders? I did not. I never said such a thing at all. And it's uh, it's, it's horrible that that, um, that Mr. Haynes did that to me. Um, through the course of our conversation, I proclaimed and expressed my innocence to him and, and what we needed to do, and he clearly knew that. But now what's interesting about my direct appeal is that I have a constitutional right to competent counsel for my direct appeal. The Constitution says I have a, a legal right to competent counsel for my direct appeal. Well, I, you know, he... It's not like he. It's not like he got with me, Michael, and said, "Hey, take a look at these issues. This is what I'm thinking about filing. What do you think about this issue? What do you think about that issue?" He, he just as we're talking, he would ask me questions. I answered all the questions. I was honest. He went. He went off the record. I didn't, um, you know, anything about the, the his accomplice argument or what or, or what he in, injected into my appeal till I received it. And immediately I thought, I don't know what he's doing. He's he's injecting me and implementing me into a crime I had nothing to do with. By suggesting that. Amy Betcher was an accomplice that would assume that would imply that she was the accomplice to whom? To you. That's right, because if there's an accomplice here or there's a crime that that, that was committed that I'm a part of, ties me into a murder that I had nothing to do with. Why, why do you feel like he maybe injected that or do you feel like he would make that up or why, why would he? I don't know why he created that argument, but not knowing the law, part of me thought, well, hey, he, he's, he's, a, you know, he's, he's a direct appeal attorney. He, he, this is what he does for a living. Maybe he sees something in there with the way that she testified or something with he read within the police reports. Or, actually, I can't say that, that, that that's true because we didn't, have the, we didn't have access to the binders then. But in my, in my you know, 27 or 28-year-old mind, I was thinking, well, maybe he sees something that I didn't see that, that will discredit her somehow and allow me to get a new trial. I didn't know, but I wasn't happy about it. I, you know, and I, I mentioned that to him. So this is how Ivan's direct appeal process went, in a nutshell. And his state habeas process was a saga in itself. And actually one person that was extremely thorough in going through Ivan's case was the mitigation specialist brought on for the state habeas. Yeah, I interviewed um, Ivan, Sylvia, Abner, the brother, Um, several of his girlfriends. I interviewed Penny, Tawny, and then I had his, let's see here, I had his Navy records, his school records, um, Parkland when he tried to, or said he was going to commit suicide. We haven't covered this yet. About three months prior to the murders, uh, this is August of 2000, uh, you were taken to the Parkland Hospital by the police because you were thought to be suicidal. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I, that was, I, went, I went by my mother's house, and we got into a, a brief argument, and I can't exactly remember what I said. I said something to the effect that she misrepresented and thought that I was going to, to harm myself or commit suicide or... I don't know exactly what she was thinking, but um, she called the police, and they, they came out. They were they were nice. Um, I explained my situation. So I'm just having a normal argument with my mom. For some reason, she jumped to conclusions, thought I was going to um, hurt myself or commit suicide, which was not the case. And so they um, they didn't arrest me. They just uh, it was like so it was a, a welfare transfer check, and so they drove me to Parkland, and um, you know we I went there, sat with some doctors. And they realized that, you know, I'm not suicidal. I don't have mental problems. Um, I don't need to be on medication, and they released me. 
How long were you, were you with them in there before they? Not even a day. Yeah, I mean, I didn't spend the night there. I believe it was just a, a just a, a day trip, and then within hours, I was released. According to record, the doctors at Parkland Hospital did not diagnose or indicate Ivan having any type of psychological disorder. And like Ivan said, he was released the same day. But given the time proximity to the murders, just a few months prior, this Parkland visit is too compelling not to address, and... I do know that the family, um, because of his drug use that had been escalating to almost daily use, I know both uh, parents said that they had remembered him being in increasingly paranoid and agitated around that time. The mitigation specialist also reported that family members before the murders remembered that your behavior would be sometimes unpredictable. Uh, shortly before the murders, uh, that you would maybe become easily agitated and paranoid because of your drug use? How do you respond to that? Well, I'm completely sober, and I do that today. <laughs> your, your behavior's unpredictable? or No, no, not that uh, my behavior's unpredictable, uh, but I'm agitated, I'm on edge, and I'm up, so I'm, you know, sometimes I can, um, you know, just, you know, be testier on edge. You know, back then, I was a recreational drug user. Um, there were times where um, I was having problems with my marriage. There were times where I was having problems with my business. There were times where I was having, you know, some financial problems. So uh, there, there were times or, or certain days where, where I was living a roller coaster. It's uh, of ups and down moods. Um, that, that's life. I mean, uh, imagine other people in the United States or here in the state of Texas have that those problems and go through that too. Was there anything? I mean, if that's just a part of life, but I mean, the, the days and weeks uh, leading up to the murders, were there any? Was there any in your behavior out of the norm compared to that or compared to the normal stresses of, of day-to-day life or anything unusual? No, no. Well, how would you define the overall role of a, a mitigation specialist for state writ, like from, from your perspective? At a certain point, wouldn't that be, at least on the surface, it looks like it's going down the avenue of, Guilt, when you're looking at a mitigation specialist, we don't really care one way or the other if you did it or not. Our job is to present you as a human being that came through all of these life experiences to the day that you either did or did not commit this crime. To try to humanize you to a jury so that they can have compassion and not sentence you to death. So, I mean, you know, my report was basically just some of the research regarding, you know, long-time drug use on the brain, serotonin-producing neurons in the brain, and how this can, you know, cause issues with regulation with aggression and mood. I mean, my stance wasn't whether or not he did it or not, but if he did, these were probably some of the contributing factors that went into if he did act impulsive that night and create the murders. In the psychologist's report, it states Ivan exhibited many of the symptoms that are common with bipolar disorder. And this mitigation specialist found a history of depression and bipolar in Ivan's family. And so if you do have somebody in your family, there's a likelihood somebody else would have it. And so I do remember seeing something in my report about bipolar and depression. And then, you know, the drug use just exacerbates the symptoms and 
Um, and a lot of people with bipolar disorder, you know, they do not take medication because of the side effects. It takes away their mania. And so oftentimes they self-medicate with drugs um, because then they can still have that high. Um, and then they, you know, typically go in cycles and, and they can be very impulsive. But just because someone is diagnosed with being bipolar or has bipolar tendencies, has there ever been a way to quantify that, how that would in- increase someone's likelihood or, or chances of, you know, committing a horrific murder? Because a lot of, a lot of people are bipolar out there. Oh, right? yeah. So no, I, there's, oh, there, oh, there's lots of celebrities out there that are, that are successful because they are bipolar and they don't take medication. I mean, a lot of people with bipolar are extremely educated and, uh, and high energy. And so, no, it doesn't. What usually ends up happening, and I can tell you, Across the board with, like I said, I've probably done 100 capital cases, and the one common denominator that was pretty consistent throughout is that almost every single one of my clients was under the influence of a substance when they committed the murder. And so what happens is, does bipolar itself? No. But if you're self-medicating to control your bipolar symptoms, then the the illegal substances that you're using will will exacerbate you know, brain function that can cause impulsivity. It can cause agitation. I mean, it really messes with the neurotransmitters in your brain. And so bipolar is not going to cause it. But if you're self-medicating with meth and speed and mushrooms, I mean, that's that's not going to work well on a brain that's already got deficits in it because now you're exacerbating things. But yeah, mm-hmm. bipolar itself, I mean... But you're more likely to commit a murder with if you're schizophrenic um, than bipolar. Bipolar is not going to make anybody more um, aggressive than somebody else. Yeah, because when I first heard that about the uh, bipolar, I'm like, well, you know, it's not a great thing for Ivan's innocence claim. You know, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't help. Um, but then I was also thinking, well, but if if he was bipolar, the other interesting thing was that like everybody that saw him that night, nobody had a I know he was at parties and things that night, so maybe that's, you know, it was dark and everybody was partying. But he also went to Amy, his his girlfriend, his um, you know, he was hanging out with her parents and her stepdad was a former cop. And I'm like, wow, if I, Ivan was b- bipolar, how was he? And, and, and I've talked to the stepdad. I said, you know, how was Ivan that weekend? You know, you would think that if you just committed murder, now you're hanging out with these People, you know, you're a little on edge. He was getting calls from the from the detective, but uh, Amy's stepdad said that Ivan, he was, he was like, he was just cool as a cucumber, you know. And he was just yeah. like, because he 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 believed his stepdaughter, so he's like, um, he believed Ivan did it. He said, "There's no way that this could have been Ivan's first murder, because he, if this was some, you know, if this was somebody's first murder, yeah. there's no way that you can hold it together for three days like that, because he would have, he never had a real." clue that Ivan and Amy could have pulled something like that off. So I'm just like, wow, that's just yeah. fascinating to think uh, with that whole bipolar thing. Well, and there's, you know. and there's two, well, and there's two types of bipolar. There's one type of bipolar where you're really, really manic all the time. And then there's another type of bipolar where you're depressed all the time. And so what happens is that depending, I mean, either, either you have bipolar one or bipolar two, they go through these cycles. And so anybody on any given day could be, seen as completely normal 
Um, but on a day when they're cycling in and out of mania and depression, that's the only time that somebody's going to really notice something. If you're not medicated, that's the only time someone's going to really notice anything. So he could have been calm and, 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 you know, cool as a cucumber just because that wasn't one of the days that he was cycling and that's what he normally was. And so, but yeah, I would hmm. think unless you are just like a complete sociopath that um, brutally killing somebody um, and then two days later you're like hanging out with your girlfriend's parents, I would think I probably wouldn't have my shit together. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm thinking that I might be a little worried that maybe cops are going to be coming for me. And, you know, I, I'm just thinking if I just committed this horrible, horrible crime, I'm not really thinking I'd be wanting to go see my girlfriend's parents, especially if her dad is an ex-cop. So, I mean, there's just, there's too many weird things, but I mean, I've had clients tell me I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And then the closer we get to trial, okay, I did it, you know, but you know, this is what I need you to know. But I will say that, that Ivan is one of the few people that from the moment I met him, he swore up and down, he didn't do it. And he's never wavered from that. And he, I mean, I mean, having been on death row this many years, just from a social worker standpoint, somebody that is lying, eventually you're going to get tired of lying and saying, you know, it's just not worth the effort. And, and if you don't really feel like you're innocent, why, why continue to battle it? Somebody who truly feels like they're innocent, I'm telling you, they're going to fight till the needle goes in their arm on that table. Ivan certainly fought with his state habeas attorney. September 8th, 2003. Regarding my continued position that you be removed as counsel. Dear Jan Hemphill, in your grievance reply letter to the State Bar of Texas and your most recent letter to myself, you state that I should be assured you read all my letters. If this were true, why haven't you honored one of my simplest requests, such as communication? As I've stated in previous letters, without communication with me, your client, how do you intend on preparing a fully armed defense? Sadly, not one letter of concern, not one visit to discuss the case, not an ounce of interest showing intent to thoroughly research anything pertaining to my case, and yet you've come to the conclusion that our most successful avenue for relief is a Batson claim. A Batson claim refers to the act of objecting the validity of a preemptory challenge on the ground that the other party used it to exclude a potential juror based on race, ethnicity, or sex. Clearly, this is an indication proving my trial transcripts and court records weren't properly read or reviewed. If such leniency was used in reading my letters, it's terrifying to know what attention was paid to something of a more severe importance, such as my trial transcripts. And I'd like to share the obvious with you, that being what needs to be exposed during the guilt-innocence phase of trial. Once it's determined exactly which laws were broken, only then will we know exactly which claims can be raised. These notes will clearly provide you with insight proving the following occurred. Number one, illegal activities performed by the Dallas Police Department. Number two, ineffective assistance of counsel. Number three, prosecutorial misconduct. Please review the notes and see for yourself that I was completely railroaded into being charged and convicted of this crime. There's no way in the world you can say that a travesty hasn't occurred here. 
Please proceed to the next page for the start of the notes. This letter to Jan Hemphill was 27 pages. For the next 24 pages of this letter, Ivan goes line by line through his court transcripts, pointing out the potential legal issues with his trial as he sees it, citing penal codes and legal precedents. It is a very thorough and well-organized document. We don't have time to go through all the bullet points in these 24 pages, but here are some that are most noteworthy. Volume 34, page 12, line 9. This is when Jeff Betcher was on the stand and the prosecution asked him, after he, Amy, and Ivan moved out of Bobbitt's house, where did they move? He testified that they all moved into Ivan's mom's house. Then he was asked how long did they live with Sylvia, to which Jeff Betcher testified, quote, probably a couple of weeks. Jeffrey and Amy Betcher never lived with Sylvia Cantu for two weeks. They stayed there for two days. I'm making a point of this because this proves Jeffrey Betcher is lying and he's not a credible witness. Still on the witness stand. Have you ever seen the defendant with a gun? Yeah. Do you know what the gun looked like? It was chrome with a black handle. Mr. Betcher, I'll show you what's admitted at State's Exhibit 76B. Do you recognize that gun? Yeah. And is that the same gun you'd seen the defendant with? Yep. On how many occasions did you see the defendant with that gun? Every day. Where did he keep the gun? In his jacket pocket. Did he ever show you what type of bullets he kept in that gun? Yeah. What kind of bullets were they? Like, like cop killers, they were called. Did he say why they were called cop killers? Because we'll go through any bulletproof vest. Did he actually show you the bullets? Yeah. Was there anything unusual about the bullet? It was like a hollow bullet, you know, the tip. I'll show you what's inside 76C. Does that look familiar? Yes. Are these the same type of bullets the defendant showed you? Yeah. And these are the bullets that he called cop killers? Mm-hmm. It is odd to think that Ivan carried this gun every day, yet only Jeff and Amy Betcher ever saw it. Jeffrey Betcher is not a qualified expert to be determining which bullets will pierce armor. How can my attorneys allow him to discuss this based on what he has viewed? And you'll remember in episode 14, Jeff also testified. Did he say why he bought cop killer bullets? No, no, he just said they would go through bulletproof vests. Did you ever have a conversation with the defendant about how easy it would be to kill somebody? Yeah. He asked me if I wanted to help him do something. Did he say what it was he wanted you to help him do? Clean up. Clean up what? After he goes and kills someone. Who did he say he was going to kill? James. When he said he wanted you to clean up, what did he say? He said, go in there and clean up after I kill him. Clean up the mess. Did he say why he wanted to kill James? He just said there was like two kilos of cocaine, a couple pounds of marijuana, and uh, 13000 in cash. And did he say anything to you regarding those items? He wanted them. So Jeff Betcher, at the time a 19-year-old kid, who Ivan just met a few months prior, is the only person in the whole wide world Ivan told he was planning to commit the murders. It also seems hard to believe if Ivan did tell Jeff that, that Jeff wouldn't have told that to Amy. 
and Jeff and Amy's dad came down from Minnesota to drop off furniture for Ivan and Amy's new apartment. They all went out to eat that evening, and the next day, Jeff ended up going back to Minnesota with his dad. Yet he never told his dad that Amy's new boyfriend, Ivan, was planning a murder, and I guess he wasn't too concerned with leaving his sister to live alone with the would-be killer. I've wondered if Ivan really showed Jeff Betcher the bullets and called them cop killers, or did the prosecution show Jeff a picture of the bullets in evidence, and did the prosecution call them cop killers so he would repeat that back to them and identify the bullets on the witness stand? I remember being in like a little room that was connected to the courtroom. I remember them going over, you know, this is what we're going to ask you, very nonchalant, kind of off the cuff. I'm going to ask you if you if you remember him wearing X Y Z, you know. And then when I'm on the stand, it do you remember what he was wearing? Kind of shady, but I know for a fact that somebody told me what he was wearing before I went on the stand. Before you told them. Before I told them, yes, I know for a fact they did. Jeff Betcher seems like a perfect candidate for some additional dirty pool by the prosecution. That's what Jeff testified happened prior to the murders. This is what he said happened after the murders. Did you hear from your sister and the defendant while they were in Arkansas? Yeah. How did you hear from them? Either they called there or I called. Did you ever talk to the defendant while he was in Arkansas on the phone? Yeah. He said, did you check out the paper? The Dallas paper? And I said, no. And he said, well, you should read the front page, meaning there's two dead, the one that he was talking about earlier to me. He was just like, yeah, check out the paper. Check it out, you know? How did he say that? Uh, what was his demeanor? Like, like I told you so, you know, like, check it out. So let me get this straight. While Ivan was in Arkansas and Jeff Betcher was in Minnesota, Ivan asked Jeff if he had checked out the Dallas paper. Let's say we believe that. Jeff testified Ivan told him all this while Ivan was in Arkansas. So presumably Ivan would have told Jeff this that Sunday or Monday, November 5th or 6th. And yet Kramer and Amy's mom had no idea Ivan committed the murders until after Amy came back to Arkansas and told them on November 9th. Let's think about this. Would Ivan have told this to Jeff while he was staying at Kramer's house, knowing all Jeff had to do was call Kramer right back? And Kramer a former cop, would have pulled out any of the guns Kramer testified he had at his house in Arkansas and pointed one of those guns at Ivan, telling him to sit down on the couch while he called the authorities. And is it rational to believe that Jeff would not have warned his own mother that a killer was staying under their roof? He wasn't worried about his mom? Well, I guess he wasn't worried about his sister prior to the murders either. 
this testimony reeks of dirty pool. And yet Ivan's defense couldn't sniff it out and ask, why didn't you call your mom and Kramer, Jeff? In three or four days, you never said anything to them? This testimony from Jeff is ludicrous and arguably perjury, which would make both Betchers guilty of perjury. And you'll remember that Jeff and Amy's testimony was listed in the direct appeal opinion to why the illegal search and seizure was not deemed to be a reversible error in Ivan's conviction. That's how much weight the testimony of the Betchers held. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Ivan's notes continued for Jan Hemphill. Page 21, line 15. This is when Amy testified that after talking to James on the phone that Friday night, that Ivan said that he was going to go over and kill James and Amy. If this was true, why didn't she hit redial on the phone or call the police immediately? Don't you think that if I told her I was going to kill Amy and James, she could have warned them? I never told her this, and if my attorneys would have properly cross-examined her, we could have proved she was lying. The Betchers, the only ones that supposedly saw the gun, or Ivan told about the murders before it happened. Volume 35, page 241, line 18. This is when the party DJ was on the witness stand. The defense was cross-examining him. One more thing, and I realize we haven't had a chance to meet, and I don't want to hurt your feelings or anything, but I've got to ask you just a couple questions. Have you ever been arrested or charged with anything? The party DJ testified, no, no priors. The judge interjected. Can you hear, Mr. Geller? They think you've had a couple of arrests for misdemeanors. Do you know anything about that? The party DJ testified, no, I've never been arrested. Fair enough. That's all I have, Judge. I'll pass the witness. This witness was on the state's witness list, and my attorneys never even spoke to this witness prior to trial. Had Ivan's attorneys interviewed the party DJ prior to trial and attempted to conduct an effective defense, they would have found out that the party DJ was sober and spent quite a bit of time with Ivan and Amy that night. And... You may have at the time, you know, happy, spontaneous, joyous, whatever you want to call it. So, would it surprise you from what Amy says that she would have just saw the cousin and the dead fiance probably 30 minutes before that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's no way that would have gone down like that. If she was there, no. See, she says she was there. At the scene? She says that Ivan 
So you saw them, I think you say about 2 a.m. Yeah, that's harder. That's probably be hard selling me, man, because to keep that composure, traumatic event like that, no, there's no way, man. There's no way you can keep up with that. It's only break down. Something would give you a tell. You know, what would you tell? As well, the party DJ could have testified that Ivan didn't have a swollen or bruised face. It wasn't that just Ivan's attorneys didn't call any witnesses, but when they had witnesses on the stand with testimony that could have helped their client, they didn't know what questions to ask. This again proves they didn't do any research prior to trial. They simply failed to prepare. Even the party DJ realized. It's a murder trial, first of all, you better have a reduction room. Well, they pulled up with me. They didn't have the right information. Well, just come and ask me. They didn't have their shit together. I know that for sure. That defense. Volume 36, page 78, line 6. This is when Amy Betcher was on the witness stand, being cross-examined by the defense. In response to one of Ms. Falco's questions, I didn't know it was Amy, Amy Kitchen's ring. That wasn't exactly true now, was it? Yes, it was true. You wanted a ring, so when you got to Arkansas, you could show your parents, right? You needed a ring? No. So there you have Ivan's own lawyer confirming for the jury that Amy Betcher was indeed wearing Amy Kitchen's ring, which would imply to the jury Ivan killed Amy Kitchen and stole that ring. Everybody seems to be discussing this engagement ring. Why was the prosecution or even my attorneys discussing items that weren't admitted into the court as evidence? There was no ring in evidence. That was never explained to the jury. And had Ivan's lawyers interviewed a few people about that, they might have heard. I actually saw that ring. I, I talked to my old roommate. He goes, yeah. He goes, and I'm like, I, I thought I did. I thought I had had that conversation before, but it's been a while. He's like, no, you, we had that conversation. But he said, but you told me that that's why you knew that he must have done it. And I'm like, yep, that's kind of what I remember. If he stole a ring and gave it to her, then that would have been the ring I saw, but not necessarily, not if she had another one. It just depending on when you saw it, but I don't think you could have seen it after the murders. No, I didn't. See him. I, didn't I, no, I never saw him afterwards. I never saw him afterwards. And the other witness that said. And I remember Ivan was wearing a full-on suit, like, you know, he was about to go out to a club. Amy was wearing a red dress. Ivan was on drugs, but other than that, he was acting normal. I had no inclination that he had just killed someone. Amy was in no way afraid of Ivan. And she was showing off the ring. Ivan was showing off the ring, too. They were at Ken's apartment for two to three hours. And when I try to think back, if the murders happened on the Friday, I thought it must have been that Sunday. But Ken thinks it would have been that Monday or Tuesday following the murders. I'm 100% sure I saw a ring. I just can't say with any certainty what night that was. Ivan told me that Amy was definitely wearing a ring prior to the night of the murders. Before I'd ever talked to these guys, Ivan could not have known these witnesses would have come forward with this information. So, they seemed to lend some credence to Ivan's story. Had Ivan's attorneys hired a PI and investigated these stories back then, they should have been able to pin down the dates of these encounters. Volume 37, page 103, line nine. With the jury out of the courtroom, both sides argued to the judge about allowing the prosecution to show the jury post-mortem pictures of James and Amy 
Matthew Geller argued, Dr. Rohr has already testified in his opinion the cause of death was multiple gunshot wounds. They've already proven it. I'll stipulate to his findings. I'll give this court my word. I won't cross-examine him. I'll stand up in front of this jury and say, Dr. Rohr is exactly right and we have no questions for him. Based on that, what good are those photographs? They don't have to bolster his testimony. Ineffective assistance of counsel. I realize that Mr. Geller is trying to keep these photos away from the jury, but it's not worth forfeiting a cross-examination of this witness. Even though we know these people are dead, we still need questions answered that only this doctor can answer. It's unacceptable to mention to the court he won't cross-examine this doctor if the pictures are not admitted. Ultimately, the judge sided with the prosecution, and the pictures of the victims were admitted into evidence and displayed during the trial. Nevertheless, Ivan's attorney did not ask Dr. Rohr one question. But if he had, the jury might have found out that based on postmortem changes, it is more likely that Amy Kitchen was killed closer to 6 a.m. than midnight, a crucial detail. Volume 41, page 31, line 2. This was during the closing arguments when Matt Geller said, I stood up and I said, Ivan Cantu is not guilty of capital murder. I didn't say he was innocent. During Mr. Geller's closing arguments, he's stating to the jury that I'm not innocent, knowing that we did have evidence to bring forth that proved my innocence. After reviewing the information I've just provided, clearly you can see how I would be insulted with what you've presented. With all this information I've brought forth, you're most motivated about arguing that Collin County discriminates against Hispanics. The Batson claim is important, but my case differs from that of your other clients. Without discussing my case with me or thoroughly researching my case with a private investigator, I can't believe this is what you've come up with in nearly two years. In this 27-page letter, Ivan listed nearly 200 points for his state habeas attorney to look at when preparing his writ. Did the attorney, did she raise any of those issues in, in the writ she prepared? She did not. She did not. So none of the issues that you pointed out? No. And although Jan Hemphill raised issues with the punishment phase of Ivan's trial, she did not raise one issue with the guilt-innocence phase. Not one. Even the mitigation specialist would assert... They didn't even put on a single witness. I mean, I'm sorry, but that right there in and of itself is going to tell any jury that you're guilty. You've got one shot at trial, and state writ is where, you know, it's, it's the perfect opportunity to say, hey, you didn't get a fair trial. She was not responding to my letters, and she wasn't answering my questions. So what we started doing was I started faxing my letters to her and keeping track of the fax confirmation sheets. So for her to not receive my mail, she disengaged the fax machine so that I couldn't create a paper trail showing that, that my letters were going to her and that she wasn't receiving my mail. And so after she disengaged the fax machine, I had my mom, I sent the letter to my mom, the 27-page letter that you're talking about. She drove to her office and had Jan's staff sign for it to show that they received it. So she clearly knew that um, what needed to be done. She did not file anything on guilt innocence. She focused strictly on mitigation and wanted to sit me down with, with a mitigation expert but if I don't need a mitigation expert, I need a private investigator. If you've done nothing wrong, you don't need, you don't need a, a mitigation expert. Once Jan received that letter, she did come and see me. Um, we actually had a decent conversation. We talked about 15 minutes. Um, she told me that uh, she's an old woman. She doesn't have the strength. She didn't have the stamina. 
and she doesn't have the resources to, to handle um, this type of case and this, uh, the magnitude of this investigation. And there's, she just, she doesn't have the oomph in her. She, she was honest with me. And I said, well, Jan, what are we gonna do? She said, well, she's gonna have to just, you know, do the best she can. And that's not good enough. So she agreed to go to Judge Sandoval and ask Judge Sandoval to, uh, to get off this case and, and, and appoint me somebody else. And uh, he told her no. They hold the hearing there in, there in Collin County on October 30th, 2003. And uh, even though she went to him and said, hey, I cannot handle and do this case, he denied it and forced me to keep her. So at that point, the only thing that she felt she could do was hire a mitigation specialist and try to just um, get me a life sentence. Of course, I wrote to other attorneys and I wrote to uh, the, even the Defender Service and they said, well, we're on limited resources. We don't have the caseload. You're just going to have to tell your, your federal attorneys when you get to that stage. And when you do, they're, they're better attorneys. They're going to have the resources and they can help you. There's a situation called procedurally barred. The problem is, is that if all of your important issues that, that have merit or that prove your innocence or get you home, if they're not in that state habeas, when you go to the next stage, the court considers them barred. You're legally barred, and if you're barred, they can they can read them and recognize them, but they, there's nothing they can do about it. It should have been in your state habeas. Since I'm entitled to competent counsel for you know my direct appeal, back then at that time, it stopped there. It did not stretch over to the state habeas like it does today. Now, he filed my direct appeal on July 27, 2003. Okay, so he, he files that. So before before my direct appeal is ruled on, she she files my state habeas behind it before it's even ruled on. So by doing that, she she failed me twice. What she should have done was file an, an IEC claim, ineffective assistance of counsel against this gentleman. Referring to David Haynes, the direct appeal attorney. For laying out that argument. The Amy Betcher is an accomplice argument. She should have waited for that to get ruled on, let the opinion come out, see what we've got, then file her appeal. That's not what she did. And two, in hindsight, um, it was, I had a horrible state habeas, but hypothetically, had it been done right and we presented everything to the court, they would have completely disproved this case. Had we done that, let's say I would have got relief on my direct appeal and they would have gave me action. Well, had they gave me action and granted me relief and sent me back for a new trial, Jan would have already presented them with the, with the whole case and everything that we're gonna use for the trial. She would have showed our hand. So she failed me two different ways. So now in the timeline, we're in 2004. Like Ivan said, his state writ of habeas corpus was filed in May of that year. The following month, Ivan's direct appeal was denied. 2005 was the year that Tammy and Ivan began their relationship. And there was another dramatic turn of events due to the state habeas filing. As a ground of relief, Chan Hemphill argued that Ivan's trial counsel was ineffective during the punishment phase because trial counsel failed to locate and introduce expert psychiatric testimony showing that Ivan suffers from bipolar disorder which was concluded by the state habeas psychiatric expert. In making this claim, the court ordered Matt Geller and Don High to prepare affidavits responding to the allegation of ineffective assistance of counsel. Again, this was for the punishment phase. It is baffling why Jan Hemphill did not also include the claim of ineffective assistance of counsel during the guilt-innocence phase. Regardless, in Matt Geller's 2005 response affidavit, he dropped the bombshell that Ivan confessed to him. This is from that affidavit. 
After I became familiar with the factual allegations against Mr. Cantu, Mr. High and I discussed our initial opinions regarding our defense of the case. We interviewed Ivan Cantu on several occasions, both together and separately, in order to get his input regarding the facts and to apprise him of the information we had obtained. Initially, Cantu had lied to us about the facts of the case and his involvement, taking the position that he knew nothing about the murders. Cantu thereafter changed his recollection of his involvement in the murders. Cantu refused to participate in any psychological mitigation strategies. Cantu wished to focus on the guilt-innocent stage, despite overwhelming evidence of his guilt in the murder of Mosqueda and Kitchen. Throughout my representation, Cantu displayed animosity towards myself and Mr. High because of strategy designed to defeat the future dangerousness special issue of the punishment phase of the trial. Cantu, despite his ultimate recognition of the evidence against him, continuously advanced his demand that we try this case to obtain a not guilty. Cantu repeatedly questioned our punishment phase preparation, stating several times that our punishment phase strategy was premised on losing the guilt-innocence phase of the trial. From the beginning, Vince Gonzalez, Mr. High and I, discussed the ramifications of having a psychiatrist evaluate Ivan Cantu. Of great concern is deciding whether or not to subject Cantu to a state-sponsored psychiatric examination was the fact that Cantu was manipulative and lied on several occasions to his own counsel. Cantu's participation in his defense consisted of, one, an initial denial of any knowledge or complicity in the murders, two, a subsequent statement involving a conspiracy between friends and a pizza delivery man who killed Mosqueda and Kitchen, three, his admission that he had indeed killed Mosqueda for ripping him off on a drug deal, and Kitchen just happened to be at the Mosqueda home, and that, quote, I didn't want to leave any witnesses, Four, that despite his previous statements at admission to counsel, he desired to advance an insanity defense that involved a conspiracy between Mosqueda, Kitchen, and Betcher to brainwash him with the drug Rohypnol that ultimately caused him to commit the murders. When Cantu was admonished that counsel would not be involved in nor sponsor perjured testimony, Cantu replied that, quote, your counsel's job is to get me home, period, end quote. Based on the foregoing, we obviously had concern about Cantu being evaluated by a stake psychiatric expert, as such would have likely led to findings of manipulation, a commonly sought state theme in the punishment phase. We ultimately decided not to have Ivan Cantu evaluated because, one, Cantu did not wish to participate in psychiatric-based mitigation evidence, Two, we did not believe Cantu would receive a favorable report. Based on the fact that Cantu had admitted to us that he killed Mosqueda in Kitchen, because Mosqueda had not paid Cantu for Cantu having supplied Mosqueda with the two and a half kilos of cocaine that was subsequently sold by Mosqueda for several thousands of dollars, and thus the murders were motivated by revenge per Cantu. Three, 
The state's evidence regarding Cantu's prior violent acts against women, coupled with the particularly gruesome nature of the execution style of the instant murders, concerned myself, Mr. High, and Mr. Gonzalez of the probability that a state-sponsored psychiatric evaluation would indicate Cantu displays a sociopathic personality. We were of the opinion that any such evidence would substantially lower our already slim chance for a life sentence, considering the fact that Cantu was indicted for murder of two people who were at home in their own bed. In 2005, Matthew Geller said that you confessed to him that you stated that you had told him that you had killed James because James had ripped you off on a drug deal, that you had supplied James with some cocaine, which he never sold and never gave you your cut. First, did you ever say that to your attorney? Absolutely not. That, that, never, that never happened. And people would say, well, then why in the world? And then how can you prove that? Well, I can prove that because my co-counsel, Mr. Don High, you know, will tell you, and he's filled out an affidavit as well, never said anything, any kind of statement like that, or, or anything having to relate to anything that Mr. Geller was saying. Now, what's interesting is that Mr. Geller, that he did not fill out that affidavit and make up that lie until it was time to defend himself. To basically, that, that was by, by him claiming that, that was his way to justify not defending me, not working on the case, or, or helping me in any way, or, or even doing his job. Don High did not include knowledge about a confession in his affidavit. And when I spoke to him in 2020, Don High told me he did not remember anything about Ivan confessing. Which does seem odd, because Matt Geller's affidavit states, quote, based on the fact that Cantu had admitted to us that he killed Mosqueda in Kitchen. We ultimately decided not to have Ivan Cantu evaluated by a psychiatric expert. And due to this confession, Cantu was admonished that counsel would not be involved in nor sponsor perjured testimony, unquote. Meaning they wouldn't call Ivan to the stand because he would be committing perjury if he then claimed not to have any knowledge of the crime. As well, both High and Geller state in these affidavits that they work closely together in all aspects of Ivan's defense. Well, if this confession had major ramifications of strategy in both the punishment and the guilt-innocence phase of Ivan's trial, how could Don High not be aware of this confession? Don High and I work very closely together in all aspects of our defense of Mr. Cantu. Therefore, we have worked together in the preparation of our affidavits. If Geller never told High, why did he tell Sylvia? A few minutes later, after I started eating my meal, he leans over to me and he goes, Ivan did it, you know. You know Ivan did it. I remember just being numb. And he goes on and he says, James had him go over to his rental properties and get drugs out of the storeroom and to bring them to him. But he was going to pay Ivan to do that for him. And he says, 
killed him because Amy Kitchens called him a pussy and it angered him that James didn't pay him the money and when he wanted it and it wasn't available to him and he got upset and he goes over there and and kills him because he didn't get the money. I lost my time. I didn't eat the rest of my meal. His own lawyer was tossing in the, the towel and wasn't going to fight for him. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know how they were going to help him. And so that I wouldn't think ill of them not working for him. I think they were just snowing me, giving me a snow job. And you'll also remember in episode nine, this is what Ivan's Aunt Penny told me about Matt Geller. We were there at the courthouse, and he said, oh, he's harmless. He wouldn't hurt anybody. Come over here, Ivan. Sit on my lap. And I thought to myself, he's on trial for murder, and he's saying he wouldn't hurt a flea. Come over here and sit on my lap. He's absolutely harmless. And maybe that sounds like a story Ivan's aunt embellished for a podcast. But this is what Penny told another private investigator in 2006. Is there any more of this that I should know? I know there's other things you want to bring up. No, the part where Matt asked Ivan to sit on his lap. Is this during the court? Look, it was before the judge came in. Matt was saying, well, he's harmless. Come over here. Come over here and sit on my lap. It's okay, you know. Of course, Ivan wasn't going to sit on another man's lap. But, I mean, that's his lawyer. When Matt said that, who was he talking to? Matt, Matt was telling Ivan to sit on his lap. You, you said he's harmless. Yeah, but oh, when he said he was harmless, he was looking at Bill's telling the prosecutor he's harmless. Bill Schultz was the prosecutor with Gail Falco. And then it was dropped, Bill and Matt, the prosecutor, and Ivan's attorney were laughing, and then it was dropped. In. I mean, would you invite someone you thought murdered two people to come over and sit on your lap? No. Absolutely not. Let's go back and examine exactly what Geller said Ivan confessed. Because if Geller was being truthful in his affidavit, and Ivan was actually on the level with Geller, this would answer why Ivan did it. His admission that he had indeed killed Mosqueda for ripping him off on a drug deal and Kitchen just happened to be at the Mosqueda home, and that, quote, I didn't want to leave any witnesses. Right off the bat, that doesn't make sense, because Amy Kitchen didn't just happen to be there. She lived there. Ivan knew that, and Ivan knew she was going to be there. And if Ivan didn't want to leave any witnesses, he sure left a pretty key witness and Amy Betcher. Based on the fact that Cantu had admitted to us that he killed Mosqueda in Kitchen, because Mosqueda had not paid Cantu for Cantu having supplied Mosqueda with the two and a half kilos of cocaine that was subsequently sold by Mosqueda for several thousands of dollars, and thus the murders were motivated by revenge per Cantu. Where did Ivan get two and a half kilos of cocaine? 
when did he get this cocaine? Why was Ivan still getting his nightly or weekly cocaine from Smiley? Why would James rip off Ivan? And if James did rip off Ivan, Ivan was apparently walking the Betchers through this caper. So why didn't the Betchers know about this major plot point? And when considering the veracity of this confession, while Ivan's innocence is certainly debatable, the fact that Ivan wanted his attorneys to work hard for him is not up for dispute. So whether he's guilty or innocent, if Ivan wanted the best out of his attorneys, he would not confess to them. That's just common sense. But the issue that raises the most doubt about this confession is that Matt Geller's co-counsel was not even aware of it. And if this confession never took place, meaning Geller made it up, think about how truly awful that is. Not only would that have been fabricated to justify not providing a proper defense during trial in a capital murder case, but beginning in 2005, this confession was made part of the record. A lingering falsehood that would be read by every court when reviewing Ivan's case for appeal. In 2006, Ivan's state writ of habeas corpus was denied. Shortly after, attorneys Mitzner and Broden were appointed to file his federal writ of habeas corpus. Letter to Mr. Mitzner, April 19th, 2006. Dear Mr. Mitzner, literally my trial was a disaster and my attorneys didn't interview most of the state's witnesses listed to testify. Once I was already in custody, the police found a gun at the home of my ex-girlfriend Tawny's. It turns out that ballistics prove this gun to be the murder weapon. During trial, my attorneys didn't call Tawny to testify, and this is significant because the state's main witness, Amy Betcher, was alone in Tawny's apartment for hours before Tawny came back, and I called them saying I was arrested. While Tawny was at work, we have no idea who was in her home. During trial, we definitely needed to speak with Tawny, but my attorneys refused to call her. The jury needed to hear that this gun just popped up from nowhere. Detective Wynn testified that once I was arrested, I called Amy Batcher and told her money was under a couch. And I promise you, this is a total lie. I never killed my cousin, and the police targeted me because it would be easy. Carlos Gonzalez testified about many things that weren't true, but what the jury didn't know was that Carlos wanted to take over my cousin's drug dealing business. At this time, I know this is a little confusing, but it's going to make a lot more sense when we talk. In reference to my appeals, David Haynes filed my direct appeal, and we spoke on the phone, but we never met. I expressed to him that I didn't have anything to do with my cousin's murder, and he filed an appeal explaining I'm claiming Amy Betcher was an accomplice. I wasn't aware of this until my appeal was already filed. 
On the front end, David clearly knew I was claiming innocence, but he went ahead and implemented me in a crime I had nothing to do with. Prior to my state habeas being filed, were you aware I contacted the state bar trying to have Hemphill removed? A hearing was held, but they didn't think it was important for an attorney and a client to communicate. She had her own agenda, and it was to file an appeal mentioning I was bipolar and that this information wasn't shared with the jury. The one time we did visit, she shared that my trial attorney told her I was guilty, and that's why she's not going to fight for me. She also said I confessed to my trial attorneys, and this couldn't be further from the truth. I never said this to my trial attorneys. Since I tried to have her disbarred prior to the filing of my appeal, of course she was going to have animosity towards me. My state habeas is a complete disaster, and since it deals with raising additional claims, Jane Hemphill literally wasted my most important appeal, and we can clearly show Jane Hemphill was incompetent in filing my state habeas. Mr. Broden, I promise you with a private investigator and the information I have to share, we can prove my innocence and reclaim the five years I've been held in prison for a crime I didn't commit. Let's talk about your federal writ of habeas corpus. What happened with that? What happened was in January of 06, when, when my state habeas was denied, the, there's a tolling law. They give you one year. You have one year to file your federal habeas. My case was appointed to Clint Broden, and Adam Mitzner. So they had one year to, to jam and get on the ball and investigate everything. And they did, they petitioned, they petitioned my federal judge for a private investigator and $5,000 was issued. His name was Mr. Drummond, but I feel that he failed because what he did was everything that we discussed, he wrote everything down and just presented a report to my attorneys of everything that I had already been telling them and Jane Hemphill and my trial attorneys and, and the previous people. So he didn't, he didn't really investigate the case or, or go visit with the people um, to discredit them. In 2007, uh, your mother found what may have been a bloody shirt. Can you tell me about that and why that matters? Well, no, I don't. What, what year did you say? 2007. Well, well, let me let me let me back up just a little bit before we get into that. Um, now, when um, after meeting with Mr. Drummond. And he went to go get affidavits from Tani, and I believe that he did speak with my mom. But through the course of the beginnings of, of I just want to make sure I've got the dates here, that because that happened, that was before 07. That's and when Mr. Drummond, I'm trying to remember. Because I want to be clear on this, because the problem is, is that eventually I got rid of them. Because when when the, when when the shirt when when the information came about, I didn't know if the information was was true or not, and it was their job to determine that if it was. I had received a letter from a man in Miami. That had mentioned that my mom um, had something to do or was sitting on a piece of the evidence from the crime scene. And so we didn't know if it was true or not. And I have, I have no idea who this gentleman is. And so when eventually when um, they went to go talk to her, um, she, you know, she didn't hide it. She presented it to them and showed them that, um, and they, they, they felt like, hey, it's probably gonna prove that Ivan's guilty. It looked like chocolate milk. 
And so they, they just completely um, discarded the whole situation. And in doing that, I mean, I was angry and I was upset because here we have, act, we have a chance to um, deal with newly discovered evidence, something tangible. Um, first of all, we'd have, we'd have to find out, was it attached to the crime? And then if so, test it against me. So this was just a, a shirt that had belonged to you? What was the shirt? No, it, I have no idea. I, sure I'd, never see, I'd never seen the shirt before. Just a shirt that your mother had had for? No, what happened was, was when uh, after, when, when the, the police gave the all clear, after Betcher went to the apartment first to clean out, to clean out um, her, her belongings from the apartment, and then the police allowed my mom to go in and get all my belongings. But my mom, she doesn't, she's not clear on this. She doesn't remember if she actually gathered that from my brother's apartment or from the Pear Ridge apartment. She, she's not, from what I understand, she's, she's not clear on that. And she has, she has said two different versions. So that, that's, that's, that, that's what's confusing. But the, the point is, is that when we discovered that it existed, we, we um, got it out of her hands, and that's when we got it into the hands of, of Tina Church. And after that, it was, it was ultimately lost. And so, yeah, this is a shirt that your, your mother had had. Not sure which residence she got it from, but it had it for the years after the, after the crime. Who knows what it could have revealed, but it, it could have been useful in your case, you're saying. Right, but, but I mean, but we, we don't know. We, don't, we, we, we have no idea. I mean, we, we don't know if, it, if it's connected to the crime or not. But what's interesting is that when I got that letter, I mean, I, 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 that was my first knowledge of it. I had no idea if it was true or not. And when, when the, the investigator finally did get with my mom and, and get, down, get down to it, she, she, she did have a shirt. And I mean, it, 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 looked, it looked bloody. But like I said, the attorneys, they said that it looked like chocolate milk. Um, they didn't want to, you know, deal with it, and we had no other choice but to try to get it to a, a different a private investigator or to a, a lab. And it turns out that um, she completely defrauded us. She charged us thousands of dollars and never went to a lab for DNA testing. And at the end of the day, the, the shirt was sent and lost. But we don't, we don't know if it was actually rounded up from the Parridge apartment um, on November 29th when they allowed um, my mom to go in there behind Betcher and clean it out or if she got it from uh, my brother's apartment when she was moving him. We don't, we don't know, but it's a, it's a ghost and almost a, um, it's, it's a moot point. Yeah, and I don't want to bog down too much on it, but just a couple of follow-ups. I mean, the, who is it that's defrauded you that you think it sent it off? Her name was Tina Church, because at the time, um, my wife, Tammy, had, had communicated with her, and, and, and Tina, had walked Tammy through thinking that, hey, just get the shirt to her. She's got the connections with the Innocence Project. She's got the connections with, with Barry Sheck and with these attorneys on standby. Just get, just get the shirt to her. She'll get it to a, a lab. She, and so when we hear that, we think, hey, we're gonna be in good hands. Just get it to this woman. She claims that, um, that she's you know, gotten uh, inmates off of, off of the gurney and helped them in the past. And it turns out that it wasn't true. And when um, we, we had to fight and deal with that situation on our own. Broden, Broden and Misner, they weren't, you know, they weren't taking an active approach to it and holding Tina to the fire and having her explain what lab did she use, you know, what testing techniques were used. Um, and before even doing that, we needed to find out, you know, does it match the genetic profile of the victims? And then at that point, trying to, you know, do, do the other testing. But uh, it was a complete mess. And, you know, we didn't, we're not, you know, we're not biologists. We're not experts. We don't know. And so we're, um, you know, we, we were um, completely defrauded and, and hooted on the whole situation. But just to add one more piece to that, when, when my federal attorneys weren't, weren't helping us, 
Tammy actually went to an Innocence Conference and talked to Barry Sheck with the Innocence Project. And he, he called over a, an attorney that was there, uh, a couple of the staff attorneys at the Innocence Project, and they were open-minded. And they said, hey, we're hearing what you're saying, what, what, what you're saying, you know, Miss Cantu. And uh, when we get back to New York after the, the conference that was in, uh, at Santa Clara University there in, uh, in California, they said, provide us with those, with those reports and then we'll get going. And we never could because they never existed. And that's, that's when we found out and we knew that we were defrauded. And, we, and in a sense, we lost, we lost credibility with, with the, I, the IP there in New York with, with Barry and his crew. This is from a letter Ivan received from a case coordinator with the Innocence Project. Dear Mr. Cantu, in response to your letter dated July 31, 2008, I am writing to inform you that the Innocence Project is not aware of any DNA testing which may have been commissioned in your matter by Tina Church. Accordingly, we have not received any reports which would substantiate that any such testing took place. I would also like to let you know that the decision of our organization to deny your case was not affected by the phone conversation I had with Ms. Church on March 31, 2008. I hope this letter finds you in good health. And so that brings us up to 2008 and the appointment of Ivan's current lawyer, Gina Bunn. But there's still a mystery that needs to be unraveled. I had received a letter from a man in Miami that had mentioned that my mom or was sitting on a piece of the evidence from the crime scene. The man in Miami. This is Sylvie. Oh, hi, Matt. Who is Rodolfo Picardo, and how did he know about that bloody shirt? Who is Rodolfo? I've never heard of him. Ivan said that that's how he found out about the bloody shirt Rodolfo had written him. Uh, Ivan, I don't know how he got the information. Something just came to mind. Okay. Um. Next time on Cousins by Blood. Two episodes left, and about a hundred days before Ivan's scheduled execution. Please continue to spread the word about this case and podcast. Thanks to Michael Haggerty for conducting Ivan's interview. Ivan, read by Ryan Freed. Direct appeal and opinion read by Steve Nupp. The Defense, read by David Whitlock. The Prosecution, read by Catherine Ganimi leach Jeff Betcher's Testimony, read by Logan Cordell. Amy Betcher's Testimony, read by Sarah Marguerite. The Innocence Project Letter, 
Read by Coleman Clark. Mixing and mastering by Jody Abbott. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.